0: It is great to be with you this morning. Uh, thankful for Jim and Seth preaching while Tony and I were up at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and thankful last week for the opportunity to hear Steve Walters preach and to think about the idea of giving and receiving, correction and growing in righteousness. But I'm thankful to have the opportunity to be preaching the Word of God again this morning. It is a joy for me to be able to be a part of this congregation and to have the opportunity and the privilege to open the Word of God with you on a weekly basis. I'm particularly excited about the series that we're starting this morning. We're starting a new series on Genesis 1 to 3. It'll take us over the course of the next 13 weeks or so. And The reason I'm excited is anytime we open up the Word of God, there's an expectation that God will speak in a powerful way. And so to that end, I'm going to pray and ask that he would do just that this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together today as your church and to hear your Word. And Lord, that is our Hope in our expectation that we would hear from your word. Lord, we know that we are prone to wander. We know that we are prone to distraction. We know that we are prone to forget. And so, Lord, we are praying this morning that you would encourage us from your word. Maybe there are some who walked in here this morning just feeling beat down and discouraged. And, Lord, if that's the case, I pray that you would just minister to them and encourage them in a powerful way this morning. Maybe there are some who've had a great week, and I pray that this morning you would remind them that all gifts come from you. Lord, really what we're asking this morning is that you would direct our attention upward and that you would help us to see your great and awesome majesty. Oh Lord, please minister to us as a church body this morning. Be gracious to us and speak through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's one of the most iconic buildings in the world and also one of the greatest accidental tourist traps of all time. It also has a fantastic name that makes me hungry for pizza every time I hear it. It's the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Now, as evidenced by the picture, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and it's not Pizza Italy, it's Pisa Italy, is indeed a Leaning Tower. Now, contrary to some modern buildings that are designed to lean or designed to bend at odd angles, the Leaning Tower of Pisa's distinctive tilt was entirely accidental. Construction began in 1173, and almost immediately it was apparent that there was something wrong with the foundation as the building began to list before construction was even complete. And despite efforts to correct the lean, by the time construction was completed nearly 200 years later in 1372, the building was seriously tilting. The problem was shifting soil. A weak layer of subsoil was causing the building to tilt. Over the course of the next 600 years, it's estimated that the tower continued to tilt an additional one millimeters per year. By 1993, it stood roughly 15 foot off center and was tilting it more than five degrees from the vertical, putting it in grave danger of collapse. At this point, engineers got involved and made some radical changes. They removed soil on the non-leaning side, they injected more cement, and stabilized the structure with steel cables. Eventually, they are able to reduce the lean by almost 17 inches to the point that the tower is now leaning at a less than four-degree angle. So it's still the Leaning Tower of Pisa, but not quite as leaning as it was before. With the restoration, engineers now estimate that the tower will be able to stand for at least another 200 years. So if your great-great-great-great-great-grandkids really want to see the Leaning Tower of Pisa, make sure they get there before 22-23. Nevertheless, restoration aside, the Leaning Tower of Pisa stands as a living monument to the importance of a good foundation, and also serves as a reminder that when the building is tilting, eventually you have to do something about the foundation if you don't want the building to collapse. Engineers did not fix the Tower of Pisa by addressing the top of the tower, or the middle of the tower, even the lower part of the tower. They knew the only way you could fix a lean like that, or at least as best you can, was by addressing the foundation. Now, as you might imagine, I'm not talking about the Leaning Tower of Pisa this morning because I'm particularly interested in talking about the history of Italian architecture. Rather, I share this picture with you because I think the Leaning Tower of Pisa is a pictorial metaphor of what's happening in our culture right now. As we evaluate the current state of society, it seems pretty obvious to me that our metaphorical tower is on the verge of collapse. Collapse whether it be decaying morality in society or the breakdown of the nuclear family, the polarization of our country, or the hatred and venom that characterizes so much of our online dialogue, it seems pretty clear to me that our tower is in trouble. And I would argue that the reason we're in trouble is because, like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, we have a foundation issue. We have forgotten who we are and why we're here, And perhaps most importantly, we have forgotten who made us. And because of that, we no longer seem to be able to discern what is true or how to live or how to interact with each other or how to make sense of the world around us. Our tower is collectively leaning, and what I'm arguing is we desperately need some foundation work. We need to be able to answer questions like, why are we here? What is the meaning of life How do we decide what is right and true? How do we navigate a world that is broken and messed up? Those are the types of questions that we need to ask and answer if we're going to rebuild our foundation. And to answer those questions, I can think of no better place to turn than the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3. In Genesis 1 through 3, we're reminded of how we got here and who put us here and how he designed the world to operate. We're also informed of how the world got to be so broken and so messed up. In short, Genesis 1-3 to not only sets the stage for the rest of the Bible, but it also gives us a foundation to better understand who we are and who God is and how He has designed the world. So I'm just going to be honest with you here. I'm very concerned about the leaning nature or the leaning tower that is our society. Culturally speaking, we have abandoned any foundation that will last, it seems, And thus our tower is in grave danger of collapse. But listen, as much as I'm concerned about the world around us, I'm also concerned for us. Because here's the thing, when you are surrounded by people building on a shaky foundation or building on no foundation at all, the temptation is just to follow suit and do what everyone else is doing. which In this case, is to forget the foundation and just build as high and fast as we can. But listen, as followers of Christ, we have a foundation. We have an anchor for our souls, and it is the Word of God. And as such, sections like the one we're about to read over the next few weeks in Genesis 1-3 to 3 are foundational to our understanding of who He is. They're foundational to our understanding of who we are. And so over the course of the next 13 weeks, here's my prayer. My prayer is that we would do some needed foundation work. That we would be reminded of why we're here, and who put us here, and how we designed the world, and how we are to navigate the world in all of its messed up brokenness. And here's the good news. I'm convinced that as we do that foundation work, our tower can still stand, even if everyone's tower around us is collapsing. So that said, let's turn our attention to the foundation work beginning in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to ask you to stand here out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. The good news about Genesis is it's very easy to find in the Bible. It's the first book. All right, so Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. Just two verses this morning. Standing is a simple way we can remind ourselves this is the Word of God, and as such, let's do our reverence. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's the Word of God. You may be seated. All right, so before we start diving into Genesis 1, I think it's important to say a few things about the creation account that we find in Genesis 1. First of all, the purpose of the creation account is not to answer every last question that you may have about how the universe was created. Now it's natural that as we read the account that we're going to read this week and in particular next week, the first two weeks in Genesis 1, it's natural that we would have questions. Questions like, when exactly did it take place? Or how do all the items of creation fit together in chronological order? Or how do we synthesize modern scientific discoveries with what we read here in Genesis? Those are normal questions that we might ask after reading the creation account in Genesis. And listen, I think there's a place for those types of questions. And next week, as we dive deeper into the details, in the rest of chapter 1, it's possible we'll even briefly touch on some of those. But it's important that you understand the purpose of the creation story as it's written here in Genesis the purpose of the creation account is not to satisfy our curiosity about every mystery of creation. Rather, the purpose of the creation story is to emphasize the greatness of our God and to help us see the world through his lenses. As one commentator put it, Genesis is more concerned with God the creator than with the time and details of creation. I think we have to be careful here over the course of these next couple weeks not to hijack the text and try to make it answer questions that it's not trying to answer. Again, the purpose of the creation account is to emphasize the greatness of our God and to emphasize that He is the Creator. and We are invited to see the world through His lenses. So that's one thing I think we need to understand about the creation account. Here's another thing you need to understand. Almost every detail in Genesis 1 has been scrutinized analyze, and in some cases criticize. So listen, I'm well aware of the fact that there are many different ways of looking at the Genesis 1 account, of approaching the creation story, of interpreting what we read here. But the goal of my preaching over these next couple weeks is not to give an historical survey of every different possible interpretation. Rather, my goal is simply to be as faithful as I can to preach the text and preach what I think it says. And it would be counterproductive to run through every possible interpretation of Genesis 1. Not only would that take time away from things that are more important, but it would also muddy the waters in terms of seeing the big picture. Many of the details of the creation story may be disputed, but the overall point of the story is crystal clear. God created everything. And I don't want us to lose sight of that big picture by diving into every possible interpretation theory. And that's relevant to today's passage also, because believe me when I say this, people have interpreted verses 1 to 2 in a lot of different ways. In particular, there are all kinds of questions about the timing of verse 1 as it relates to the timing of verse 2 and as it relates to the timing of the rest of the chapter. Is verse 1 a clause simply setting up verse 2? Is verse 1 a summary of everything that happens in the rest of chapter 1? Or is verse 1 the first act of creation? I tend to lean towards the latter option for the record. I think verse 1 describes the initial creation event of the universe in its entirety. And then verse 2 moves on to talk specifically about the earth before the events of verse 3. But again, I think the danger of going too far down the rabbit hole is we can end up disputing all these details and miss the big point. And hear me, the big point is that God is creator. That's the point of Genesis 1. That's where our attention should be this morning. Now having said all that, I think there are a couple of observations worth making from verses one and two about this idea of God being creator. In fact, there's two observations I want us to think about this morning. The first is that God is at the center of the story, and the second is that God is indeed the powerful and majestic creator of all things. Again, I don't want us to lose sight of the big picture. God is creator, and those two observations I think will help to bring that into focus. And then after we've observed those two things, I'm going to help us think about some implications. In other words, some ways that we might think and live differently in light of what we observe here. So again, just two observations this morning. Observation number one, God is at the center of the story. Now over the years, the Bible has been labeled in a lot of different ways. Some have referred to it as a book of rules or a book about morality. Others have said it's God's love letter to us. Still others have tried to be more creative and even come up with acronyms. There's one from the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. It's clever. And hear me, I'm not denying that the Bible has rules or conveys morality or gives instructions before we leave the earth. I'm not denying that. Nor would I refute that the Bible helps us to understand God's great love for us. But that said, let me be absolutely clear. The Bible is not first and foremost a book about us or a book about morality or rules or instructions. The Bible is first and foremost a book about God. It's a book about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. It's about God creating all things. It's about God initiating a covenant with His people. It's about God rescuing His people from their sin. It's about God one day restoring all things and making them right. In the same way that Ebenezer Scrooge is the main character in A Christmas Carol, or Peter Pan is the main character in Peter Pan, the main character in the Bible is without question God. And that's evident from the very first verse of the book. Again, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not a coincidence that the first subject in the Bible is God. In the beginning, God Genesis 1-1 does not say, in the beginning, Moses did this. Or in the beginning, Mary did this. Or for that matter, Genesis 1-1 does not say, in the beginning, Ryan did this. No, from the start, it's clear, God is the main character. He's the one making things happen. He's the one calling things into existence. He's the one carrying out His plan. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, in other words, from cover to cover of this book, God is the center of the story. In fact, without Him, there is no story there would be no creation, there would be no earth, there would be no us. He is the main character. He is at the center of all the action. And so that's the first observation that's worth making here in relation to the idea of God being creator, that God is at the center of the story. Observation number two, God is indeed the powerful and majestic creator of all things. Again, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 1, the phrase heavens and earth is just another way of saying He created everything that exists. All things were created by Him. The word translated as created here in verse 1 is the Hebrew word bara. Anytime that word appears in Scripture, God is always and without exception the subject. He is the only one who creates. Humans may make things. We may organize things. We may discover things. We may even invent things. But those discoveries and inventions are simply ways of taking things that already exist and reshaping them or reorganizing them. God alone creates out of nothing. And make no mistake about it, that's what's being implied here in Genesis 1.1. That God created out of nothing. Or to use a fancy Latin phrase, he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. Before God created the universe then, nothing else existed except for God himself. And actually points to another mind-blowing reality of verse 1. In the beginning, before time began, God already was. He's eternal, without beginning or without end. There never was a time where God did not exist. And there will never be a time where he ceases to exist. We have a definite beginning. God does not. The universe has a definite beginning. God does not. He is not like us. And his otherness is also hinted at in verse 2. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now you'll notice that in your Bibles, most likely, Spirit of God is capitalized in verse 2. That's intentional. While it's true that the word translated as Spirit could be translated as wind, almost every English translation translates the word as Spirit and capitalizes it. And for good reason, it seems almost certain that verse 2 is referring to the Holy Spirit. And so what we're being reminded of here from the beginning is that God is triune. The Spirit is hovering, the idea is of an eagle hovering over its nest. The Spirit is hovering, waiting to spring into action. And so from the beginning here, we're reminded that God is triune. One God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person fully God, and yet there's just one God. Now obviously the doctrine of the triune God does not fully develop here in Genesis 1. But it's being hinted at in verse 2, and it'll be hinted at again later in chapter 1, verse 26, when God says, Let us make man in our image. Now, to be sure, the doctrine of the Trinity comes into sharper focus in the New Testament. We even learn in the New Testament that the Son also was prominently involved in creation. So when we put the Old and New Testament together, we can say Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all of them involved in the act of creation. Now, we don't see all that here in Genesis 1, but it's hinted at in verse 2 with reference to the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. So in conclusion, this is what we can say about God based upon what we read in verses 1 and 2. He created all things out of nothing. He's eternal, without beginning and without end. And He is triune, existing for all time as one God in three persons. Or maybe to say it more succinctly and more simply, He is not like us. He's not. I mean, think about this. God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. I, on the other hand, can't figure out how to get my closet door back on track when it comes off track. God has no beginning and no end, He knows all things. I have a hard time remembering what I ate for lunch two days ago. God is triune in nature. Sometimes I can't even figure out if a number is divisible by three. And get this God created the world in six days. And it's going to take us 13 weeks to preach through three chapters. So yes, we are not like God. I'm not, God. I'm not like God, and neither are you. We are the creation. He is the eternal triune creator. So that's the second observation from Genesis 1. God is indeed the powerful and majestic creator of all things. Now having said that, the question is, what implications does this have for us If God is at the center of the story, and if God is indeed the powerful and majestic creator of all things, how should that change the way that we think and live? I think there are a lot of ways we could answer that question. Let me just suggest three implications of those two observations. Implication number one, if God is at the center of the story, we are not. We are not. Now let's be honest, we tend to put ourselves at the center of the universe, don't we? Think about this, if someone snaps a group picture and you're in it, what's the first thing you do when you see the picture? You look for yourself, if you're like most people. Or think of another example. If you're waiting at a stoplight, and the stoplight seems to be taking forever to turn green, what's your reaction? In that moment, are you thinking, I am really happy for the people going the other direction. I'm so glad they're getting to their destination quicker than they expected. Or are you thinking, this is really annoying to me. This is wasting my time. Right? We tend to think that everything in the universe should operate according to our desires and our whims. Furthermore, we tend to vastly overestimate our own importance and our own significance. A friend of mine told me a story recently where he was really frustrated with something happening in his workplace. And so he talked to his superiors and he told them, listen, if this situation doesn't change, I'm going to have to go. And you know what his superiors did? They said, we'll see you later. And listen, As he was telling me the story afterwards, it was clear that the most painful part of the experience was not that he had to change jobs. The most painful part of the experience is he realized he wasn't as valuable as he thought. But listen, that's true for all of us. We are all far more dispensable than we'd like to admit. One of my seminary professors once reminded us us of this reality in a powerful way. In class, he told us one day, he said, listen, he's talking to a group of pastors here, future pastors, he says, listen, don't forget That no matter how much they love you as a pastor, one day you will die. And the people in your church, they will go to your funeral. They might even go to your graveside. They might even cry a little bit. But then they'll go back to the church, and they'll eat potato salad, and they'll have a piece of cake, and then they'll decide who the next pastor is going to be. His point was, none of us are as important as we think we are. The world will move on without us. And that reality is confirmed throughout the Bible. Characters in the Bible come and go. Take Joseph, for example, Genesis 37 to 50, this amazing story about Joseph. Exodus 1, they forgot about him. It does not take long for characters to fade in and out of the story, but God is the one constant that keeps going throughout history. So hear this. I am not the main character in the Bible, and neither are you. My name is not even mentioned once by name, and neither are yours. Now I know if you're John, you're like, John's in there. That's not what we're saying, is it? Your name is not in there because we're not the main characters. God is. And even the characters that are mentioned in the Bible are just on the side compared to God. The universe does not revolve around us. But hear this. It does revolve around him. He created the universe by word. He upholds it by his word. He is the main character. None of us are. Now, maybe that sounds really discouraging to you this morning. Maybe you think, oh, man, this is a bummer. I'm not as important as I thought I was. But actually, I would argue that the centrality of God is both incredibly freeing and incredibly empowering. Think about this. When I look at the world, I tend to be stressed out a little bit. I feel like everything's messed up. For that matter, when I look at my own family, sometimes I get stressed too because everything feels messed up in our family. And it feels stressful because I can't fix those things. But you know what one of the good news implications of Genesis 1:1 is? I don't have to fix everything. In fact, I can't fix everything, nor is there an expectation that I would because I'm not the main character. And because I'm not the main character, I can relinquish these things I get stressed out about, these things I get anxious about, and I can give them to the one who can actually do something. I can give them to God. Listen, I can't fix my kids. I can't fix the broken political system we have. I can't fix my wife's illness. I can't fix the brokenness of this world. But you know what? That's okay. It's okay because I'm not the main character. And the fact that I'm not the main character is freeing because it means it's not on my shoulders. It's not on my shoulders. But the fact that I'm not the main character is also empowering. And it's empowering because we get to be a part of what the main character is doing. As followers of Christ, we are invited to be a part of his mission, to be a part of advancing his kingdom. In other words, we get to be a part of the main character's story. I think there's something within each of us that longs to be a part of something that matters, something bigger than ourselves. The reason we gravitate towards sports teams or the reason why we sacrifice money to give to a charity or the reason we volunteer to be a part of a worthy cause is because there's a longing within each of us to be a part of something bigger than us. Inherently, we know there must be more to life than just being born, collecting stuff, and then dying. We want to be a part of something that matters, something that will last And what I'm telling you is this, as followers of Christ, we can be a part of something like that. We can join in on his mission, the character whose story never ends. We can follow God and obey him and make sure his name is known to others and thus be a part of what the main character is doing. Listen, it's not about us, and that's okay. Our goal is not to make much of ourselves Or even to build a legacy for our name. I know sometimes we talk that way. We say we need to build a legacy so that when we're gone, people will remember. But listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. The truth is that you will live, you will die, and you will be forgotten. Even our own family members will forget us. I was reading a story recently where a professor at a Bible college said that he starts each semester by asking his students this question. He says, how many of you can name all eight of your great-grandparents by name? And to this point, at least if I remember the story correctly, not one student has been able to do that. And so the professor then goes on to tell the class. He says, listen, within three generations, your family will not remember you. But God knows your name. And he will never forget. And so live for him. That's the encouragement that he gives to the class. And that's the point that we're making here in Genesis 1. You're not the main character, but that's okay. Because you get to be a part of his story. You get to live for something that matters. Live for the kingdom of God. That's one implication here. The second is related. If God is the creator of all things, then we owe him our allegiance. Then we owe him our allegiance. I had a good friend in college who loved music and decided to start a band. And eventually his band got pretty good. They started playing gigs across the region. I think they even produced a CD. But then a funny thing happened. As the band got bigger and more successful, they decided to kick my friend out of the band that he started. In fact, oddly enough, they later asked him back and then kicked him out a second time. So twice he got kicked out of the band he started. How did that even happen? How do you get kicked out of the band that you started and not just once but twice? Now, I always thought that that story was funny, but what made it funny was it didn't make any sense. How could the rest of the people in the band be so cold-hearted and so ungrateful that they would kick out the guy who started it not just one time but two times? And it was a Christian band nonetheless. But here's what's crazy. Societally speaking, it seems to me that that's kind of what we've done with God. Except God didn't just start a band, did he? He gave us life and breath and everything else. And on top of that, while my friend may have been limited musically, maybe that's why they kicked him out, God has no limitations. He is perfect. And yet, as a society, proverbially speaking, we have kicked him out of the band. We don't care about his design for the world. We don't care about his wisdom. We don't care what his word says. We don't care that he created us. We just want to do our own thing. And when you think about sin, as we're talking about rebellion against God is sin, when you think about sin in those terms, you start to realize how serious sin is. That God created us, and we decided we want nothing to do with Him. To know that you've been created by a powerful and loving God, and yet simply do what you want to do, ignore His teaching, go your own way, throw Him to the curb, that is the height of arrogance. Listen, some of us have forgotten that we are the creatures. You did not create yourself. You did not knit yourself together in your mother's womb. You did not speak yourself into existence. You were created by God. And as such, he's due your allegiance. So if you've forgotten that, let me encourage you this morning to repent of your self-sufficiency, repent of your arrogance, and humbly run back to God. If God created us, we owe him our allegiance. And that's another implication of what we read here in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. But I think there's a third implication of what we read here in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and that third implication is this. If God is the center of the story and the creator of all things, the gospel of Jesus Christ is even better news than we thought. I want you to think about something for a second. If God is the creator of the universe, if he created all things by the word of his power, if he's eternal, having always existed, then triune is existing as one God in three persons, And the good news of the gospel, if all that's true, and I I think it is, the good news of the gospel is even better than we can imagine. As our creator, we owed him allegiance, but instead we spit in his face. But instead of destroying us, get this, which he would have had every right to do, he instead decided to rescue us. He took on flesh. The Son, Jesus Christ, came and entered our world and took the punishment for our rebellion that we had created against our creator, or that we had committed against our Creator. And Jesus came so that we could be right with the Creator again. Despite our rebellion, He took the initiative. And get this, if we're in Christ, not only are our sins forgiven, and not only are we a part of the family of God, but on top of that, we're told in Romans 8 that He is working for our good. In fact, Romans 8 says it this way, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now here's the thing, if your vision of God is weak, that he's a grandfather-like figure who's asleep in heaven, or that he's a watchmaker who just made things and then let it go, then Romans 8 will mean almost nothing to you. But if you understand who God rightly is, the eternal triune creator, the idea that God would be for you, that is incredibly profound. If the creator of the universe, the eternal triune God is for us, then who can be against us? And the answer is no one. For the non-Christian, the idea that God is the majestic and powerful creator should be terrifying, because one day they'll have to give an account to him. But for the Christian, the idea that God is the eternal triune creator, the majestic and powerful God, nothing could be better news because God is for us. Jesus Christ, he's for us. So hear this, when you really understand what's being communicated in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, the good news of the gospel becomes even sweeter. The God we read about in Genesis 1 took on flesh to rescue us, and he is for us if we are in Jesus Christ. So listen, I know our cultural tower is leaning right now and in serious danger of collapse because we've lost sight of the foundation, but the good news is this. The foundation is not beyond repair. We just need to remember where to look, and I would argue it starts by looking to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the foundation worth building on. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your reminder here from Genesis 1 that you are the powerful creator. And we pray that we would view the world through that lens this week. We pray that we would view the good news of the gospel through that lens too. You are for us. The one who created all things, the one who's eternal, having always existed, the one who's triune in nature, you are for us. Help us to see that as the good news that it is. And help us to see the amazing good news that Jesus would take on flesh to rescue us despite our rebellion. Lord, help us to see you rightly. Help us to see our sin correctly. Help us to see the good news of the gospel rightly too. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so one of the things that we like to do on the week's opposite of the Lord's Supper is just spend some time